Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Aisley. It's a podcast about making work better. I get a daily email of all the listening figures in different Apple charts around the world. Now, of course, Apple phones are disproportionately used in affluent countries. I get that. Um, but, you know, I've, I've occasionally sort of glanced through this. And look, I just want to give it a call out. I, I came 20th in the business charts in Angola, 25th in the business charts in Argentina. I never take it for granted my number 46 position in the business charts in Austria so and, and that's just the A's pretty evidently and uh, let me scroll down if you're listening in Ghana Guatemala the Philippines Pakistan uh, I want you to know that you're seen Slovenia Taiwan I see you Vietnam no Yemen understandable um, but anyway so th- thank you I really appreciate all the listening out there Now, what we're going to try and grapple in the next few episodes is trying to make sense of exactly what's going on. I find myself being a bit COVID optimistic. And as a consequence of that, I think for the first time, we're in a position where people can start thinking specifically about what their plans are. We've been talking about hybrid working for a couple of years. Now we can actually give it a go. I ran a couple of polls, one on Twitter and one on LinkedIn. And if you want to vote, you can still vote in the newsletter about when firms are going to return to the office. It's really interesting. About half of firms said they hadn't got a plan of when they plan to return. But the other half say they've either gone back or they're going back in February. I like it. I like it. We've been talking about this for so long. It's like the Tokyo Olympics. We've been talking about it so long. We start wondering if it's ever going to happen. But there's an opportunity for us to go back and see what's going to take place and and let's give hybrid working a go. And in that spirit, I've got two brilliant guests today who are going to give us the very latest thinking and insight. In a minute, I'm going to be talking to Julia Hobsbawm. Julia Hobsbawm is one of the leading I think think tank style thinkers, one of like the opinion formers, one of the people who's got the ear of government. And Julia Hobsbawm's got a brand new book thinking about the themes of the the nowhere office, how we're going to be working in the future. 
Before that, I've got, there was a brand new piece of research that came out today from, from Future Forum, this organisation that Slack has created about the future of work. So on the day I'm recording this, uh, they had shared with me the, the research and I got the opportunity to talk to Brian Elliott, who's the executive leader of the Future Forum. So there's two different sets of information. I think you're going to enjoy listening to both. There's so much um, commonality and intersection. But the thing that really struck me today, I spoke earlier, to a chief executive who said, oh yeah, we're going to be back to normal in about a year and remote working, hybrid working, all of these different ways of working will be a long gone memory. Wow. You know, it's such a reminder to me that as much as we think this is now a foregone conclusion, there's plenty of debate yet left to come. And someone has told me, another company told me, that their experiments with hybrid working almost deliberately are going to be set out to fail. So really interesting. Let's get straight into the experts. First, here's Future Forum's leader, executive leader, Brian Elliott. Brian, I'd love you to introduce yourself and explain what you do. Sure. I'm Brian Elliott. I'm the executive leader of a group called Future Forum. We're a think tank. We're actually a consortium backed by Slack, partners like Boston Consulting Group, Miller Knoll, and Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Uh, They're a nonprofit focused on helping uh, advance underrepresented minorities. Um, And we do two things. Uh, We do data. Uh, We uh, dig into knowledge workers around the globe every quarter. We pull 10,000 of them to ask what's working and what's not to get at habits and practices that make work a better place. And we do dialogue. We actually talk with a large number of executives across companies about how they're thinking about the future of work and how they're navigating to a more people-centric way of working. And you've just put out this new report, which gives a really valuable uh, sort of dipstick as a snapshot of, of what's happening. Give us the headlines. So we're almost two years into the pandemic, and we've seen consistently in the Future Forum Pulse, this survey of 10,000 knowledge workers around the globe, is people's expectations have changed, right? So people expect to have more flexibility in where they work. They've spent the last two years proving that they can be productive working at home under really trying circumstances. Now what we're moving from is what people's expectations are. 78% of people want location flexibility, 95% want schedule flexibility, to actual habits and practices and what's changing. And what we're seeing in this latest result is the hybrid era is here. Uh, For the first time, we're seeing the majority of employees, 58% of knowledge workers around the globe, are actually working in a hybrid environment, not in the sort of um, polls at the end of the spectrum of fully remote, you know, working from home, never coming in, or five days a week in the office. And that move towards a more hybrid future is uh, challenging. It's hard for a lot of organizations and companies but it really reflects what most employees want. And so there's just a lot of work to unpack in figuring out how to make it work for everybody in your organization. And is there a disconnect between what employees want and what bosses want? Because I keep hearing, I I just had a conversation earlier today and a boss, a senior leader said, in two years, this will all be a memory and we'll be back to the office five days a week. And I said, oh, wow, I just don't think employees want that. And they were resolute on it. There seems to be a disconnect between employees seem to be loving, you you describe uh, schedule flexibility or workplace flexibility. Employees seem to have really taken to this and bosses less so. What's what's the answer to that? Absolutely. There's a a major disconnect actually between executives and employees. Uh, Executives, when we poll them, so for example, of those that are working remotely, 75% of executives want to be in the office three days a week or more. 35% 
37% of their employees want that, right? So most of your employees don't want to be in nearly as often as the boss. Um, this is showing up in a bunch of different dimensions. It comes out in like how executives are actually planning for their future of work. Nearly two-thirds of executives tell us their future work plans are being put together with little to no input from their employees. That's going to be a major challenge in terms of retaining those employees, though. When we ask people, are you open to new jobs and new opportunities, it's much more likely that you're going to leave if your organization doesn't afford you flexibility. In fact, you know, like 58% of people overall are open to, to new jobs these days. But that number jumps to 72% if you feel like your company is not being flexible with you around when and where you work. How is that going to be resolved? Is this all leading into this talk of the, the great resignation? Is this all the, you know, the market effects are going to be the things that ultimately come to bear? I think there's a lot of organizations that are realizing that's, that the market actually does matter. It's more of a great realignment than a great resignation. People aren't just leaving. They're actually leaving to take on other jobs and other opportunities, especially in the knowledge worker field. And if you think about like what's going on underneath it, people have actually you know, spent two years demonstrating they can be productive. They've appreciated the work-life balance they've gotten back in a lot of cases, you know, cutting the commute out. And so if you're not going to offer me at least some degree of flexibility and your competitor will, then I'm likely to walk. And that's why we're seeing a lot of executives actually, at least to some degree, rethink this. That's why we're seeing hybrid being a much more dominant model, for example, than fully uh, in the office. Because if you actually want to uh, retain talented people, you're going to have to afford them some degree of flexibility to make this happen, or they're going to walk. I saw in the research that it said that, specifically on the UK number, it said that 60% of, of knowledge workers were open to changing job in the next 12 months. And is that is that right. we're sort of imagining that workers are thinking, I'm going to give this a go, I want to see good intentions, but I've got a clearer idea than ever before of what I want myself. Yeah, that's absolutely true because that the flexibility desire is one part of that, meaning they actually want the flexibility. And if it doesn't come to pass, then they're going to you know look at other opportunities. The other factor, though, in terms of being open to changing jobs is the sort of broader, you know, great realignment is also about not only my work-life balance, it's also about what's the purpose of my organization. It's also about the transparency of my leaders with me. So I'll give you another example in this. One of the things that we find consistently in the research is that People who believe that their organization is transparent, that they are sharing what's going on, that they're able to explain why they're making the decisions they are, are also much more likely to stay. So that 60% of knowledge workers in the UK that are open to changing jobs in the next year decreases sizably if you give those people flexibility and if you are transparent with them about your plans, about how you came to those uh, decisions. If you aren't transparent, um, or if you're just dictating terms from the top, they're much more likely to uh, to walk. It seems like there's a really interesting thing here that to some extent what we're describing is workers and companies. But it's not that, is it? There's often workers, companies and middle managers. And companies have got policies that they might be communicating and that might be created with the best of intentions. And then these workers who have got Opinions that sometimes they're willing to share and sometimes they're not willing to share. There's then this middle group, middle managers, and a lot gets lost in translation there. To some extent, the job has changed so fundamentally from what it used to be that 
it's probably unreasonable expectations on them. How's the role of middle managers going to change, do you think? Yeah, we, we've seen uh, this both in our in our research and in our conversations with companies. Frontline managers, the people that are new managers, the people that are just taking this on, the people who are you know uh, right there at the, the sort of rock face of making teams more effective are the ones that are the most challenged. Um, executives have actually had a pretty good life over the past couple of years. They're you know, employee experience scores in our surveys are all much higher than uh, frontline managers and employees. Frontline managers have had all the challenges of not only dealing with, you know, becoming a good manager, but doing it with distributed teams, which most of them weren't trained uh, to do in the first place. So if you're used to management through attendance or through supervision or surveillance, you need to learn some new skills. And this comes out really clearly in both research and conversations most of our frontline managers need to be taught how to manage to outcomes, as an example, as opposed to attendance. Because if you're managing your team on the basis of here's the you know, goals that we're trying to achieve, and here's your personal responsibilities around achieving those goals, it's much easier to have a, a fair and level playing field in terms of how you're going to assess their performance. But that's hard. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of training of managers to have that skill set in terms of you know being outcomes driven as opposed to kind of falling back on the old tropes of, well, you know, Jane shows up at 8 a.m. and she leaves at you know 8 p.m. So uh, she's a hard worker, so therefore we will reward her. It's really important that we invest a lot more in skilling frontline managers around this sort of outcomes-driven way of managing people. Tell me this. Um, you know, it, it's, it's such an interesting moment we're in right now because a lot of We've, the last two years has been talking about hybrid work and that yet a lot of us haven't really done a lot of hybrid work because even if we started going back to the office in the, the late summer last year, very quickly we were sort of yanked back out. And so as a consequence, we've been talking about this mythical hybrid work, but we haven't given it a go yet. But one of the things that we often find when people do give hybrid working a go, and it it sits very vividly in my mind, the companies I dealt with last year who tried it said, we're not really enjoying this. We're going all the way into the office and doing back-to-back video calls. We're kind of, we, we've lost something. So obviously you're a forum that's a, a group of technology companies. How do you see technology being enhancing for this? And do you think hybrid working to some extent is an interim position on the way to something else? I'm, I'm intrigued whether you perceive whether it's a halfway step. I think so. I think the answer to that is hybrid is actually probably going to be the dominant model. And I'll tell you why. Um, but also, you know, this isn't just a technology solution. It's actually a, a process and how you work together solution. So let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Most people, most employees actually do want to come together with some frequency. That may be a couple of times a month. That may be a couple of times a week, but they want it for um, collaboration and they importantly want it for connection and building relationships. The challenge with that, as you noted, is how do you make it work? How do you organize it? How do you actually think about who should come in when, why, and how? The answer to that, I don't think is going to be top-down dictates. The companies that are saying, you know, everybody needs to be in the office Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday are missing the fact that different teams have different needs. So one of the things we've done, so I happen to lead Slack's Future of Work Task Force as an example. Um, We've disaggregated that set of problems. If you start off with a set of principles that say, we know flexibility is valuable, but we also know, for example, that even though we're going to take a digital first approach, digital first doesn't mean never in person. We want people to come together with some periodicity. But we're not going to solve that top down. We're going to let teams figure it out. 
a product and engineering team might actually have a need that's more like once a month we get together for a week. And that week is spent planning, but also having meals together. And it's much easier to think about that as being your cycle. A sales team might actually have a couple of days a week when they actually want to be in the office together. So letting teams figure this out through their own team level agreements is a much better way of making it happen. Technology obviously plays a key role in all of this because you're stitching it together. The office used to be, you know, the headquarters. The office used to be the center in which all, all work happened and digital sort of stitched together the pieces uh, when you weren't in the office. Now the exact opposite is true. Most of your activity, your sharing of knowledge, your information happens in digital platforms. Digital is now your headquarters. Office space is still a great and critical tool, but it's got to be reoriented and rethought about in terms of how do you provide flexible spaces for teams to come together to build relationships, not rows of desks to house people with their heads down, uh, presumably doing work. To answer your question even more uh, directly, I think hybrid is the right model because a lot of organizations have this need to come together. They also have employees who need to be in a physical space. Uh, Genentech, one of the organizations we talk with a lot, has people that work in labs. Um, you have people that are that have services needs in front of their customers. Finding a way to blend the two together is going to be challenging, but it's a realistic solution. If you put the work into it, it can also be a much better solution. Even the fully remote companies pre-pandemic will tell you that they came together on a regular basis because that building of relationships was really important. And so even for them, that once a quarter, engagement of people together, having meals together was really critical. It's a much more um, uh, uh, challenging model to figure out how hybrid's going to work in some ways. But isn't the thought process that goes behind it worth it in order to have much better and much more inclusive teams? To, to my mind, I'm so fascinated because so much of work sits as kind of mythology in our head so like you know the way we've talked about ideas sessions the way we've talked about water cooler moments oh. the way we've talked about um <laughs> interactivity I, I was chatting to someone the other day and they, and they were talking about oh the real value of the office is connection and look i really yeah. strongly get there is something about the energy that is generated when people are face to face it's magical and especially when you establish a rapport with someone that synchrony is very hard to establish remotely but i do think we romanticize it a little we do in the yeah. retelling describe every meeting as like the best date anyone's been on or the best encounter or the best night out and there's a lot of face-to-face meetings that aren't very good. There's a lot of days where people have no moments of eureka, moments of revelation. And I think we romanticize it. And that's why, to some extent, you know, if a lot of us go back to three days a week in the office in the short term or two days a week in the office, I can very easily see that gradually there might be an evolution to something smaller than that. I actually think that I think you're right in the sense that that frequency doesn't need to be that high for a lot of teams. So my team, for example... <laughs> We're spread out across Canada and the U.S., uh, both coasts. Uh, we come together once a quarter for a week. Um, and that once a quarter for a week uh, is really valuable because it's more time together. It is personal. It's a much easier way to build you know, some depth in our interpersonal relationships. We had to um, move that from February to March this year because of Omicron. And we kind of miss it. For other, for other teams and other organizations, they may not need it as frequently. For some teams, they may want it more frequently than once a quarter. They may need it almost you know, every few weeks. I think underlying that, though, you're right. There's just so much mythology about work. There's so much that is 
the whiteboard was such a wonderful tool. We all have been in so many meetings where the whiteboard has been mismanaged and where the brainstorming session became a session controlled by the uh, person who might look like me, an older white person, uh, male, who was holding the pen and kind of controlling the flow of the conversation. Um, Water coolers. Water coolers somehow were this great and wonderful tool that generated all kinds of insights. There's actually fantastic research on on something called the Allen curve that actually shows that if you're more than 10 feet distance uh, from one another, the odds that you actually have conversations and talk uh, drops precipitously. And there's even worse, uh, even better research that gets at the fact that um, open office floor plans actually decreased the amount of interaction that people had with one mm. another. We've spent a couple of decades, you know, thinking, decades and decades, thinking that the way that those of us who came up over the past 20 or 30 years succeeded is the way everybody else should succeed. Instead of asking harder questions about what's the right way to get teams to be able to be collaborative, how do we think about, for example, concepts like brain writing over brainstorming, giving people a prompt, giving them a few days ahead of time to do their own idea generation off of that prompt, then bringing them together and having them all contribute those ideas without pre-screening them because someone, you know, ineffectively is running a whiteboard. There's just so many opportunities to rethink how work gets done, not just where and when. Tell me this. One of the things I've seen is that Slack have, I think, announced that they've got a policy that managers can't come in every day. I don't know if that's right. I'd love to hear the thinking behind that. It is. It is. It started. So this is one of the things that comes out of our research. We know from a flexibility standpoint that the desire is much stronger among underrepresented groups. So, for example, um, caregivers and in particular in the UK and in the US, women with children have a greater need for flexibility, both in terms of where they work and when they work. And so if you set up a standard that said we'll allow people flexibility, but your executive leadership team all showed up in the office five days a week. You're not leading by example. And we think that concept of leading by example is really critical. So one of the conversations we had um, early on as we were thinking about reopening offices and coming back in among the executive leadership team was, what are you going to do? How are you going to behave yourself? And so our executive leadership team agreed they wouldn't be in the office more than three days a week because they didn't want to have an example set that made it sound like, sure, you can be flexible, but we're all going to be in and don't you feel like you need to be in the room? I'll give you another example of what we did with that same group. Um, Reviews, executive reviews. Think about like the classic, you know, a new marketing campaign in front of the chief marketing officer or product review in front of the chief product officer. If you're a mid-level manager, you may only get one or two or three of those opportunities a year. If that meeting is happening on the C-suite floor in a conference room, and there are, you know, two thirds of, of the people in that meeting are showing up in that room. You're really going to be uh, uh, challenged if you're dialing in, both logistically, like can you break into it, but also just in terms of feeling like like you're not in the room where it happens in the power dynamics. So those meetings in particular, we moved to a concept called one dials in, all dial in. Basically, keep everybody um, uh, separate, uh, separate dial ins, uh, seeing the whole thing. That lowers the pressure on saying to people this power dynamic exists in the first place, it also makes for a more level playing field in terms of participation among attendees. But doesn't that, and I love that, I love the the democracy of that, but doesn't that make the shift to fewer days in the office even more inevitable? Because if I've 
you've got a lovely office in the middle of San Francisco. If I made my way all the way into the, the Slack office and then found myself doing video calls back to back all day, I might say, you know, it's better for the planet for me not to drive in boss. And I might, I might present it like that, sort of a nice ecological angle. But effectively reducing my need to be in the office, does that not make remote working to some extent even more inevitable? It, it makes it makes a um, it means we're going to shift more towards a couple of days a week for most people as opposed to three to five days a week, and for other people it's going to be a few times a month. I think which what you know what we have to balance out here is there are twenty percent of people in our survey that actually need an office space. Their home setup is not conducive, and this is among people who could be flexible, right? This isn't people whose job demands they be in there because you know, for example, like the Genentech example, they have a lab equipment that they need to handle. There are 20% of people out there who, you know, their at-home space is insufficient for them in terms of making this work. So we've got an element of that. We've got an element of teams that want to come together with some periodicity. Figuring out how to make that work on, you know, a manager plus, you know, five or six people and every few weeks or every week for a day or two, what's our average day that we're, day or time that we're going to come together and be there can work well. It's these larger scale meetings. It's this 12 person, 20 person review meeting that I think we need to be uh, more thoughtful about in terms of how we conduct those, because that's where you get into the power dynamics at play that can lead back to problems that I know executives have a growing concern around, which is the the chance that presenteeism uh, comes back to driving, you know, who gets promoted, who gets new opportunities, as opposed to are people generating the outcomes that we're looking for? Uh, final sort of question, really. Um, you know, obviously, in, in the capacity of, uh, of using Slack, a lot of a lot of firms have used Slack as the way to, you know, to connect people socially as well as um, as well as company wise. You know, <laughs> so they've created running groups in Slack. They've used it in different ways. Uh, has anyone used it as a way to try to generate one of those things that we've really missed in the last two years? Moments of serendipity. Are there any sort of applications like that? What people often say to me all the time, they'll say, how do you create serendipity when people are working remotely? And I just wondered if there was a, a technological solution to it. Yeah, there, there absolutely are. Um, and, and part of this comes back to not just the technology, but but you know how people think about how they connect with one another. Um, a, a couple of examples, uh, pre-pandemic, you know, when I would talk with CIOs, I would occasionally get people saying, you know, Giphy, which is an app in Slack that helps you share GIFs. Um, uh, you know, why is the app there? It's kind of, you know, it doesn't seem like it's about work. It's more about fun. Over the past two years, people have proclaimed the joys of Giphy and water cooler channels and other places where people can have social interaction with one another. Those social interactions are really important in terms of people making connection with one another, feeling a sense of belonging. And in fact, in our research, we see a growing sense of belonging among those who are in hybrid setups and remote setups, more so than those in the office. And it's in part because those, those cultural elements can be created inside of, you know, tools like Slack that allow you to um, not only share, you know, uh, a document or, you know, a Salesforce record, but allows you to share a GIF, a meme, a joke, uh, how, how was your weekend? The serendipity stuff can also get really augmented. There's a tool, for example, called Donut. Donut is a tool that we've used uh, within Slack uh, ourselves now for a couple of years, and it allows you to basically randomly pair people up. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can create the book club. You can create, you know, among my senior leadership team, I actually want to make sure that people once a month are having a meeting with somebody else that's not in their function so that they get better connected. 
those types of um, programmatic connections, almost programmatic randomness, is actually in a lot of sense uh, a more uh, a better way to approach the problem than depending on whether or not you bumped into somebody in the elevator uh, to make it happen. Love it, love it. Learning tips from the power users. I love it. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so Absolutely. grateful for this conversation, Brian. And, and look, because the report's hot off the press, it's sort of uh, brand new information. How, how frequently do you do this report? Every quarter. So the, the, the Future Forum Pulse comes out once a quarter, uh, and we dig into even deeper you know, data and insights on what's working for uh, people around the globe and what's not. Well, maybe we'll chat again. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bruce. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Brian Elliott from, from Slack, but he runs the, the Future Forum about the future of work that they've got there. That was dazzlingly fabulous. And now I think something else that you're going to enjoy just as much. This is a, an opportunity I had to talk to Julia Hobsbawm. She's uh, the author of a new book called The Nowhere Office. And Julia really has taken a moment to reflect philosophically, managerially on the way our relationship with work is going to change. I think, you know, what an opportunity to hear an expert who's right at the leading edge of thinking about these things. So here's my conversation with Julia Hobsbawm. Well, Julia, so lovely to be here with you. I've known you for a few years now, but I wonder for the benefit of the audience, if you could kick us off by introducing who you are and what you do. Well, Bruce, I'm Julia Hobsbawm. I'm an entrepreneur and writer, and I write, I hope, about the everyday realities of how we live and work. And my sixth book, The Nowhere Office, Reinventing Work and the Workplace of the Future, is just um, out. And I chair the Demos Workshift Commission. But my real identity these days is that I'm also known as Granny J. I became a grandmother recently. Well, congratulations on that. Thank um, you. Okay, so, so look, you know, an incredibly respected position as a commentator on the, the way that the world of work's going. And, and because you've framed it about the office, it sort of invites thinking about how central the office is. In fact, you know, you talk about sort of these different ages of the office. The interesting thing, I'm, I'm an obsessive about sitcoms and I've lo- always loved sitcoms. And, and uh, the thing about a sitcom is they say like the foundation of sitcoms is you need a trap. You need some way that people are stuck together with people that they don't necessarily like. So families are a a classic trap or flats are a classic trap. And the office, to some extent, is a a classic trap, isn't it, that brought a melting pot of different people together. Do you think we've been freed from this trap? Well, we're certainly obsessed by an entertainment. And one of the things I found when I was really thinking about the office and the fact that we were deprived of it through lockdowns was how prevalent it is in our in our psyche through entertainment. You know, Bosch, the detective series that's done so well on Amazon, it's really not just about a detective doing gritty detective stuff. It's really about the office politics. And then I thought, succession, which we were gripped by. Quite a lot of that is about office and and particularly the toxic office. To answer your question directly, look, I think a lot of people missed the office, but a lot of people didn't. And I think that one of the challenges coming back post-pandemic is that 
two years in which new behavioural habits have been laid down, in which technology has roared into people's homes in such a, a, a huge way, has made everybody from the bottom to the top recalibrate and reassess their relationship to the office, that place which was so dominant. And people talk about the great resignation, which in fact is slightly overstated. We don't yet know how that's settling down. You know, 3% of America's workers upped sticks and moved jobs last August, prompting this phrase, the great resignation. But actually what I think is happening overall is a great reevaluation. And I think the office is both a symbol and a symptom of that, but almost not the point. The office is a metaphor for the way we think about our whole lives as well as our working lives, and that the significance attached to place is possibly overstated. Yeah, what I really took from it was considerations of hierarchy and considerations of hierarchy in so many different ways. So like one example, so let's even remove it from the office, but we've had a perceived hierarchy of technology till now. So we've perceived that face-to-face was best and that digital wasn't as good. And you give one example, which is like it actually really struck me was about like doctors, children doctors. And, you know, the idea that carrying a sick child across town to go and see a doctor was perceived as more valuable than having a video call. Actually, it's it's only when you frame it like that, you think, oh, that's just like a, a mistake, a cognitive mistake that one is worse than the other. And it's really interesting so much about what you've asked me to think about and asked us to think about here. It's about hierarchies, how power works with with the offices, how the way that we evaluate things in relation to each other. How do you see that that notion of hierarchies and work changing? I agree. That is what I'm interested in. I suppose I'm interested in power and I'm interested in behaviour and I'm interested in norms. And certainly all of that has shifted about enormously. So, for instance, the idea of the corner office to talk about hierarchy, you know, that was the place, wasn't it? The corner office and the job title and the big kahunga. Well, the big kahunga has really enjoyed working from home. And one of the difficulties of the the professions, which is really the world that interests me a lot, is that the top of the hierarchy, the bosses, find themselves understanding for the first time, perhaps, some of the issues that those people that had less power than them were experiencing and their voices hadn't been heard. I'm talking about working women, obviously, people with caring responsibilities, those with a long commute, or even those um, who felt uncomfortable with the blatant race hierarchies in the office. You know, there's quite a lot of evidence that people of colour and diverse ethnic origin backgrounds prefer Zoom or prefer Zoom some of the time because there's an equality. I was really surprised by that uh, information because, for me, it was always, well, you stand a better chance being face-to-face and bumping up against the boss in the lift kind of thing. So all our assumptions are being changed. But ultimately, 
the office and work is about hierarchies and I don't think those hierarchies work anymore. And one of the things I feel very strongly, I shall possibly stand corrected, but at the moment I really feel strongly that anyone that imagines those old hierarchies can be recreated and reinstated wholesale. I believe they're mistaken. I think values have changed, cultures have changed, behaviours have changed, our use of place have has changed, our use of time has changed. And with that, the hierarchies. And on that, of course, the job market has switched to being a buyer's market to a seller's market. Very profound changes in that, not just in the US, but in the UK and all over the world. So I think it's just a completely riveting time, but it's also an unsettling time because those norms just don't apply anymore. The pandemic has connected people at scale for prolonged periods of time with the idea that the life they have, separate from the work they do, needs to be factored in. And that just earning more and more and having status and participating in a hierarchy that has been assumed isn't viable anymore. Would you say then that as a result, when you see industries where they seem to be resisting these things, and so most evidently there's this some, um, you know, there's people on the record, the chief executive Goldman Sachs is on the record of saying working from home is an aberration. And there's actually, if you go into that sector, if you go into that banking consulting sector, there's no shortage of firms who would really like workers back in five days a week. I've done work with three or four firms and you know their brief to me was we need everyone back in the office five days a week and of course my answer is always that's not what I'm I'm here to to say but um so do you think you know in the spirit of what Eric Schmidt used to say when he was chief exec of Google that never bet against the internet do you think those people are betting against the inevitability of of a sort of cha- a fundamental change that you know anyone who wants their team back in the office five days a week is kind of trying to push water uphill. I think so, but with the caveat that there is no one size fits all. That there are certain sectors, the financial sector amongst them, which for various reasons, not least security and legislation and privacy, mean that. Um, you know, wholesale moving the tech to people's homes is 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 not ideal. So the caveat is that it isn't one size fits all. And I'm not knocking those industries or professions or individual organisations that say we have a need either ongoing or on a short term basis to have our people in the room all together five days a week. That's not I'm not in the business of advocating fully remote or fully part-time. But what I would say is that those industries are increasingly becoming exceptions and that they are going to have to use pressure for presenteeism because presenteeism is no longer a choice. All the evidence seems to suggest that people want flexibility and freedom across the generations. And there's no surprise in that if you think that we've enjoyed since what I would call the co-working years of 2006 or seven, we've enjoyed technology which has literally enabled mobility and movement and freedom. And so all the pandemic did is make the largest mass workplace experiment into making those realities. The point about the Goldman Sachs of this world is 
interesting because I wonder and slightly worry whether the stuff I write about, which is the great reevaluation, is in fact universal or whether it isn't really about the developed economies, where to some degree we're exhausted, we've got burnout, the stress data, um, epidemic stress levels. In fact, the World Health Organization declared stress as um, the single biggest uh, health epidemic of the 21st century. Now, they did say that before the pandemic. But I mean, stress afflicts the developed professional working world. That isn't to say that developing economies may not want 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. Thank you very much. So I don't know how the economics of the global economy are going to work out. But what I would say, and you can see this really clearly in America, you can see it really clearly in the UK, the markets, I suppose I feel I've got a bit of a handle on. In these territories, People do not want to go back to be a worker drone with the same intensity five days a week. They just don't, and they won't. Paint us a picture then of what you anticipate, almost like you've taken almost a historical perspective of it. So paint us a picture then of how you anticipate an office looking and feeling going forward, because you sort of describe something that feels to me a bit like a members club. It feels a bit, a bit like a sort of a building where interactions come and take place on an intentional basis rather than a place that we go as a sort of a, a domicile, as a place that we've sort of got our own desk. Go and Describe how you see it playing out. Well, Charles Handy, the great management thinker, has uh, described the perfect office as being like a private members club, communal dining, you know, instead of the library, you have a, (laughs) well, you might have a room for reading and you might have a room for functions and tasks rather than uh, atomized offices. Here's what I think. Of course, I don't know for sure, although you can certainly see the trend from the way property developers, property owners, current long lease holders are behaving. I mean, Google repurposing their their HQ, that sort of thing. What I think is that people in certain industries, in the professions, those hybrid haves, if you like, rather than the hybrid have-nots. Let's not forget, there's an awful lot of people in the economy going forward. They still don't have the power. They still don't have the agency. They still don't have the choice. But in those industries that want to attract and retain skilled, bright people who can move their organisations forward, they are going to, in my view, offer hybrid. And what that means is that the office environment is not only going to have to compete aesthetically and visually and technologically um, for more than the creature comforts of home, Uh, you know, better coffee and better um, amenities. But they're going to have to provide that raison d'etre to hop on the train or the bus or the driverless car to go there in the first place. And I believe that raison d'etre will be collaboration, creativity and above all community. In other words, it will be a a bit like the blended family. If you think about it, almost all of us now have step relatives or divorced relatives, or we're part of a great big melting pot of a family. 
And we convene and gather at special occasions, don't we? Well, I think the office HQ will be a special occasion place. Now, that's not to say that teams won't come in every other Wednesday or on a, on a preordained basis for particular projects. But the identity of an industry and a brand based around an HQ, I think will only have people in for masthead events where there's a reason. But I also think that in terms of bricks and mortar, the the reality is those HQ meetings and gatherings could, for some industries, just as well take place in a pop-up way, in a co-working space, even in a hotel chain. So it's going to be, you know, the property side of things, I think is fantastically interesting. I'm not about saying the nowhere office is no office, but I think it is a very, very different kind of office. Tell me this, because that poses two big questions for me. We're starting here with a notion that we understand what organisations look like and organisations are the basis of work. That's broadly it. Whereas extrapolating what you're saying, then a sort of loosely affiliated group of freelancers might be a better way to get it done. What's your perspective on how freelancing is going to evolve? Well, the data I was able to track down suggests very strongly that the professional working class is going freelance, that the numbers of people who are what I would call solopreneurs making their own luck, even within a corporate structure, they're sort of hired into different departments or on a project basis. So I think the world is going freelance and certainly a lot of very senior business leaders I spoke to for the book, they think so too. You know, flexibility is in some ways a bit of a um, a different way of saying our people are going to be freelance. And so within that, that's commensurate with the idea that you don't need these fixed bases. I do think that presents tremendous economic issues, the flight largely from the city to the suburb, the pressure that will put on so-called central business districts, the pressure that will put on the way the corporate property market is structured. It accounts for a serious pillar of the global economy. And I think, therefore, you don't have to be a sort of socialist or agitator to comment that there's going to be pushback, there's going to be fight back, there's going to be organisations who have a property-based vested interest in saying, no, 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 this isn't how we do things. And you could actually even see it, certainly in the UK, the government has tried to do what um, someone called flex shame workers back into the office. You know, I've heard property developers say, do your national duty, go back to the office so that you can buy the coffee and have the dry cleaning. And I'm thinking, yes, but what's really going on is this is a moment where collectively an awful lot of workers have said, This is the time to say enough. Work wasn't working brilliantly for us. We didn't like the stress. We didn't like the commute. We didn't like the very function of our organisations, the dysfunction of organisational life, as well as all the lovely, touchy-feely camaraderie, Gemeinschaft, as you might say, of the office, of which I'm a fan and I don't knock it. But the truth is the office was not all it was cracked up to be. And so you can't just dress it back up. You have to actually grasp the nettle, which is, are you asking people to do good work? 
Are you giving them good leadership? Are you giving them good management? Because if you are, if you've got that team of individuals, as somebody put to me in the book, then you can figure it out together, can't you? Where are you going to be and how are you going to be and when are you going to be? I'll just say this, that one of the people I interviewed for the book, very senior global advertising executive, said that some of the best creative work he'd done was digitally. So I don't think there are any norms anymore. I don't think the given that you can only network in the office, that you can only collaborate creatively in person are true. You're going to have to go the extra mile if you want people back in the office and really say, we are going to be a place worth being. We're going to be an organisation worth working for. That's much harder for leaders. It sort of raises one question. So I said there was two things that came up. And and the second theme that you talk about is the um, something I've been thinking a lot about. And you're the first person that I've seen mention it. And it's the theme of um, pejoratively, I think we'd call it identity politics, but it's themes of identity in the workplace. <clears throat> and I just wonder, firstly, if you could give me your perspective of how you think for themes of identity might intervene and, and how, start having an inf- influence in the way we work. Well, overall, of course, the power to come back to your point about hierarchy has shifted from the place to the person. So this is the big challenge for organisations. The second thing to say is that work itself is experiencing an enormous identity crisis. We know this. That's why we're talking about this. That's why everybody's talking post-pandemic. The third thing to say is that I think with respect to various very important issues that have been raised in the workplace – including those about identity, of gender, of race, of of sexual identity. I wonder whether the priorities going forward are going to be, if you like, pronoun-based or not, and whether in fact we're going to see a different identity emerging, which is, are you a hybrid have or have not? Are you what I would call a solopreneur, making your own luck, being largely freelance, or are you on payroll? And what life stage are you at within an organisation? Because that requires a high degree of differentiation in the way that your organisation looks out for you. If you're just arriving in the workplace, you do need mentoring, you do need uh, structured learning, you do need that environment that might actually be better than your apartment or your flat. If you're a lever, as I put it, generally speaking older, generally speaking with caring responsibilities and different priorities, you're going to want your work employer, contractor, workplace, whatever you call it, to be respecting that identity and to show you that they can make you welcome in a different way. And finally, the leader themselves, the leader who is in charge of of setting the tone and monitoring and managing. When you take all those issues together, those realigned priorities that I believe are there, I wonder whether the identity politics, which has really gripped the workplace around self-identity out of work, are going to matter so much. I may stand very corrected on that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, my, My perspective on it is that the scope for themes of identity to become far more important at work, largely because there's so many 
different schisms that we observe. You know, generally, I think it's pretty easy to imagine if an organization's got some degree of autonomy um, and they allow workers to be self-determining, that workers who are older will generally choose to work from home more and will generally choose to be dialing in from probably home offices or better setups. Um, and younger workers earning maybe significantly less, half as much as, as senior workers might find themselves in the office. And generally when we've seen societal collapse at a bigger picture level, it's where several different schisms lie along the same fault lines. So when ethnic and financial schisms overlay or where um, power and religion lies uh, in, on the same line. It generally, they're the causes. I think it's, it makes it 15 times more likely for civil war, for example. And so just to play those things into the workplace, the idea that you've got younger workers coming into the office every day, witnessing their older colleagues dialing in from home, add on to the fact that the older workers have got houses, add on to the fact, and I can see very if we're not careful, organizations might think, wow, we've got warring factions working here who kind of don't like each other. Well, I think that's really interesting. And I think that's extremely well put, but I don't actually think that's what's going to happen because I think okay. those overlapping fault lines already exist, which is the learner, the lever and the leader, as I put it, are all overlapping anyway. So for instance, one of the people I interviewed, um, an HR professional said that her lever contingent, when they come into the office, they like their own desks. They don't like to hot desk and they do like to come into the office. And in another life, as you know, I run a network called Editorial Intelligence and the people who join our club are the lever solopreneur generation. They are people who want to be connected. They often feel isolated. Now, they want to have the freedoms to do their caring responsibilities, but demographically, the Gen Zs do too. So the Gen Zs want, um, I mean, Ipsos did some amazingly interesting research on this, and in fact, Ben Page, the global CEO of Ipsos, said to me, we're going to need offices. We're just not going to need them for work. And the Ipsos data shows that both millennials and Gen Zs and in fact, say, working parents are majority in favour of both three days a week and having the flexibility to work from home. So what you've actually got is sort of a pattern of contradiction across all the demographics. Everybody wants a bit of office, a bit of camaraderie, and they want their freedom as well. Now, how that shakes down is very much up for grabs. And for me, it comes back to the age-old thing. Is the work worth doing? Because the other trend I've observed is that purpose and productivity are very key drivers. People want to be productive. They want to do their best work, but they'll only do it if it matters to them, if it's important to them. And then they'll turn up wherever they need to turn up, whenever they need to turn up, as long as they can get on with their lives as well. 
So I just think that we shouldn't be looking at this from a box tick kind of perspective, which is what I think government is at risk of doing. If you come at this problem, in my view, from the perspective of what do we do with our buildings, that's going to be a problem. If you come at it from the perspective of what do we do for our people and what are our people telling us, yeah, I guess everybody's going to be able to figure it out. Intriguing. I, I think like the thing you said there is is the challenge for a lot of people now that this is a massive contradictions anyone trying to work out what should my team do my organization what should i advise someone they're confronted with the fact that a lot of the evidence seems to be contradictory they might want the office to have some degree of a network effect to it so that when people come in they can have these moments of creativity that you describe and yet if they want to create those moments of people serendipitously coming together, they need to sort of get rid of a degree of that flexibility. So these are massive, those, those contradictions. I think it's why people like you waging into this debate right now is so valuable for so many people because, you know, listening to people who've considered it helps all of us try and navigate, I think, the, the uncertainties. But, you know, even like I've, I've read two or three books in the last few months wrestling with these themes. And it's just, even then, here's the challenge of it. We're left with this massive contradictions, aren't we? We are, but at the same time, I think we can see some trends quite clearly. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the world is at a new reset point, just like we were in 1945. There is a a feeling of rebuild, of regeneration, of refresh, of things that have been swept away before. So there's a sort of optimism. The second thing is that we, we, we do know now that latent desires for work like balance and flexibility, which were ignored largely for 70 years, um, are now back in the room, if you like, but that technology is going to enable us to have the best of both worlds. So I'm a bit of an optimistic pessimist. I think that there are lessons that can be learned. I think that it would be really good, and I call for this, I make 12 recommendations, as you saw at the end of the book. I certainly think that the World Economic Forum, the OECD, the World Experience Organization. There are lots of entities uh, and, of course, the World Health Organization that need to come into this story and say, these are some givens that we need to be benchmarking. We need to be looking at how productive and purposeful workplaces appear to be. Instead of organizations relying and dreading and celebrating whatever glass door says about them they should be their own glass door instead of the appraisal saying to people what do we think about you organizations should start saying to their workers how are we doing what do you think we're doing for you so i'm for i'm sort of for a bit of a revolution that i think is happening anyway i think people need to hold steady iterate, innovate, experiment, listen, but above all, stay close to one thing, which is if work matters, and I think work does matter, then people are going to get through this nowhere state and we will get somewhere. And I think the fifth phase of work following the Second World War is probably going to be the somewhere uh, place. But right now, it definitely, to my mind, is the nowhere offers. So there's one thing that 
did cross my mind as I was going through. One of the groups that helps us navigate these changes right now, or certainly plays themselves into an authority, are human resources teams. In fact, you know, very rarely do companies have like discrete culture teams that don't in some way loop into human resources. If this is the group helping us navigate change, you seem to take issue with some of the behaviours you witness there? Being very diplomatic. I mean, look, (laughs) I think HR is both the problem and the solution. I think that of all the departments that are going to lead the workers, if I can use old speak, through this tremendously challenging moment, it is the people function. But not for nothing is HR called human remains behind its back. Ultimately, I think that it has been loaded up with so many different functions that it has become impossible to manage. And I'm a big advocate for clean, simple, straightforward management. I think the the, the HR function has become too complex. I also think, let's be honest, that it's a little bit the bullied child of the C-suite. It's a bit of an enabler. You know, I'm not going to name the companies, but we know the case studies of organisations where HR has basically covered up egregious practices by bosses. That said, HR is often uh, first in the queue to sort people's problems out. And they have had tremendous responsibilities during the pandemic. But the fact remains, it's become rather baggy as a department and needs to be overhauled. Again, I wouldn't want this to go out without the qualifying statement that some of the uh, innovators across organisational life that I admire most and have studied most are the HR innovators. So this isn't a sort of an attack, but it is to say HR is the front line of an organisation and it's not yet built for the purpose of the nowhere office. I don't believe that, no. Uh, Julia, it's sort of like a really mind-opening discussion. I've really benefited, firstly, from tearing through your very readable book and, and then secondly, sort of hearing you lean into those things. So I just want to thank you for, for coming and, and talking to us about them. Thank you. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you to Julia and thank you before that to Brian. I've really loved the opportunity to pick the, the minds of, of these brilliant thinkers. And uh, if you are interested in these things, the, you can find more details in the show notes. Uh, there's an opportunity to pre-order Julia's book there as well, uh, The Nowhere Office, which is out in a couple of weeks. The final thing I'll add is that I'm really keen to hear from companies who are trying new things out. So that's not just we've got people coming in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's things like the company who I shared on the newsletter a few weeks ago who had decided that their culture was Wednesday plus one. If you've got a Wednesday plus one, if you've got a Tuesday plus one, whatever it is, I'm really keen to hear. I'm really keen to sort of put a spotlight on people who are doing innovative new things. I've got a couple of trips to go and see companies. I'm going to be recording little bits along the way. So please do get in touch and I'd love to hear those things. Thank you so much for your company today. I really appreciate it. I've been Bruce Daisley. See you next time.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 